Hey everyone, I just want to record this little intro bit before the episode actually starts. Because of a lot of outside factors, we weren't able to record in person, and so the audio quality of this episode is not exactly what we want from the product. Um, we're sorry for that, but going forward, hopefully this won't be a problem. This is between the SCG and some stuff that happened in real life for me and Trey. We just weren't able to get in person and do it. And I'm sorry, but I hope you can still enjoy the episode. You're listening to the Even Odds Podcast on the Constructed Criticism Network. Here are your hosts, Mason and Trey, and thank you for rolling with us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 16th episode of the Even Odds Podcast. I'm your top 32 host, Mason, and I'm joined by my top 64 co-host, Trey. Man, Dacker's right at the start. <laughs> I had to figure it something, and I figured this is the best <laughs> I could do. <laughs> we both down a bracket on breakers. Here we yeah, are. Yeah, to say the least. But we'll talk about that more in just a second. We're going to talk all about SCG Indy Week 1, Standard Week 1. And looking in ahead for the future events like GP Memphis, the RPTQs, and stuff like that coming up. But first, a word from our sponsors. Wayfinder Travel Agency is back with the summer's hottest deal. The Gruel to be Kind Summer Concert Series. This four-day extravaganza is smashing its way across the country to a city near you. Don't miss out on the show that Trolling Stones magazine called a riot. Feel the rhythm and let's get wild this summer. You've got to be gruel to be kind. Get your tickets now, only from Wayfinder Travel Agency. Yeah, you definitely want to make sure you get those tickets now. It can be pretty grueling to miss out on those deals. So make sure you go over there and use our promo code to know we sent you. I would criticize that joke if it wasn't in line with all of the ones that I just made. I have no idea what you mean. We would never joke about a sponsor. That's but- true. We, we take ads very seriously. As you should when you have your own sponsors for the podcast. You have so many. They have different ones each week. It's crazy, really, to say the least. No other show has it. Who knows? Why is that? <laughs> uh, jokes aside, though, let's talk about SCG Indy uh, Week 1 standard metagame as a whole, Trey, because there's a lot to talk about, and there's a lot for people to look for, and a lot of decks and things to go over. So, Trey, do you want to start off with how you did at SCG Indy? Yeah, I finished uh, 38 um, on Breakers. And uh, I was pretty happy with the result overall. I ended up with X5. I think I played well, generally. Uh, I played What deck did poorly. you play? Uh, I played uh, Bant Climb, or uh, Ooze Cruise, as even Odds plants, uh, fans might say. Um, and I did send a lot of people on a journey they didn't want to go on. Love it. Awesome. I'm sorry to cut you off there. I just want the people to know what you were playing. So it was the same deck you were kind of talking about last week at the beginning of the show, correct? Yeah, absolutely. The The main deck list that I tweeted out uh, for Mythic is the same list that I played. Awesome. And you're still pretty happy with all that stuff? I am. Yeah, as far as the main deck is concerned, I didn't see any real reason to change anything. There are some tweaks that I would make to the sideboard that I had played. Uh, but yeah, I would run it back this next weekend and be perfectly happy to do so. Awesome. I'd love to hear that. The RPTQ is coming up, so it sounds like you're pretty happy with that. Uh, I am playing... Well, I got 20th at SCG ND, um, and I played Gates Control, the four-color gate deck. 
so it's the same deck that I talked about last week as well, before at the beginning of the pre-show. It is basically a control deck. That, it was a ramp deck that plays out like a control deck that uses the Gate Matters cards in order to synergize and take over the game. And I was very impressed with how it played. I think we kind of did the thing we talked about last week where we figured out some of the problems, we addressed them, and we tackled it. And I got rewarded at the tournament for it. I had a lot of games where my opponents didn't know what was going on. I had a lot of games where I was able to overpower my opponents with all my synergy. And I was very happy with the main deck. And I think the sideboard was a travesty. But <laughs> I won a lot of game ones. So that wasn't the biggest deal in the world. <laughs> well, yeah. And also you have the advantage, right, of the thing that your deck is doing is so powerful that even if you're not getting the best upgrades that you want out of your sideboard, well, it's still the thing that your deck does is really powerful. Yes, yeah. My, my best draws are so close to unbeatable for fair decks that it's very hard for anyone to ever interact with me. And I somehow stole a matchup against Reclamation and I stole the match against Fog in the last round of the Swiss where he went to go off and then failed while going off. And all he had to do was explosion for six and hit a Fog to not die to my Gatebreaker Ram. And then he would almost assuredly win on the next turn because he would draw five other cards off the explosion. And he cast it and whiffed after activating his Conta that turn as well. And I won the game. So sometimes it happens like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, but, you know, overall we had a good weekend. I thought that this was a really fun trip um, and, and that we played good magic and had a good result. All three of those things don't always line up every time you take one of these type of journeys. And so I, I had a lot of fun with the crew. Uh, it was great uh, hanging out with Hippo and Hess and Tommy and uh, getting to hook up with Teresa, um, you know, and play games and stuff when we got there. And that was a lot of fun all the way around, and it was a really great weekend. Yeah, it was really great. And I want to give a shout-out uh, to one of our listeners who I met you, and I know your name, but I don't want to say your name wrong on the podcast, so I'm pulling it up right now, and this is called vamping. See, sometimes when you're doing stuff, you vamp to make uh, ways that I can say that Sebastian Daniels, listener of the podcast, got ninth at the Open. So we all got hit by breakers this weekend. Sebastian, the hardest. Yeah, that's right. And Sebastian was a was a great guy. I really enjoyed meeting him. Uh, we played in the Swiss, and uh, he gave me the business pretty hard. <laughs> um, but we talked about the podcast, and then he just continued to to just win a lot of matches on day two, and uh, did come up with the heartbreaker. I think he was like a hundredth of a point away from top eighting. Yeah, something some absurd number like that. Like you run it back a hundred times, he makes it every other time. Yeah, but it was really great showing from Sebastian, and I hope that he continues to, to go to these events and have success. Yep. So let's get, hop right into the main topic here now. We've kind of gone over what how our weekend at the SUG went there in the big picture. Trey, what did prep look like for you for SUG Indy Week 1? Well, this was uh, definitely a new experience for me as far as prep because I prepped almost exclusively on MTG Arena. Um, yeah. Honestly, I haven't opened uh, Moto since arena launched it's just not a thing that i've really been doing so it was a lot of that's not uh, thing anyone's doing to be fair it's true <laughs> yeah the, i think the standard queues on moto now have like 150 people in them which is pretty astonishing um but yeah it, it was a lot of uh, uh started off and i ran a bunch of best of ones uh just to try to get a feel for what type of deck i wanted to put the time in and actually picking and deciding on and so I was running through a lot of different deck ideas and a lot of sketch ideas that we had had uh, from lists that we had made prior to the time that the cards were live. Um, and then was running through best of ones just to try to like get a feel for what decks were worth tuning and exploring further. Um, found out pretty quickly that the Bant Climb deck 
the Ooze Cruise was going to be a fun trip to take and that it was winning a lot of best of one games. So then it was, I took it to the traditional constructed uh, best of five leagues in order to try to uh, figure out the sideboards and what kind of plans I was going to have in regards to that and then tried to run as many of those as I could prior to the event. How about you? So, yeah, it's interesting for me. So we recorded the last episode the Sunday before the SCG, so uh, five days out from it, and we both hadn't hit Mythic yet. And I wanted to work on the Gates deck, and just like you, I only played on Arena. Uh, in fact, I, hadn't, I didn't even have my deck together until about 40 minutes before the tournament started because I had so many cards pre-ordered. And it's just not reasonable to play in real life. It was more efficient just to play on Arena. But when I got home from recording the podcast, I streamed, and I got pretty close to Mythic, and then I just played on Arena for the rest of the night, and I exclusively played Esper Control and, uh, what's it called, Guild's, Guildgate deck, just to get a feel for those two decks, and I was able to hit Mythic with those, and you hit Mythic playing Bant Climb. And once I hit Mythic with the deck, and I beat a lot of red decks, I was like, okay, I made, some, I made one concession in the main deck, adding an extra angel and cutting a Guild Summit for the best of ones. I was like, let's switch this back and let's play two out of threes. And I very quickly realized my deck was busted. And then it was a thing where it's like, not bust, busted's a bad word to use. My deck was very powerful, right? And it was stronger than I thought it was. Like, when you look at the Guildgate deck, it looks like a draft deck. And that's the thing that I hear everyone, like, the fun part now is I get to hear people talk about the deck on other podcasts. And everyone's like, oh, it looks like a really good draft deck. And so it looks like that. But when it plays out, what it looks like to the expectation makes it seem busted. It's just very powerful. And so... I started playing games, and I was like, all right, I keep winning with this deck. I'm pretty happy. Then I had friends watch. I was playing on stream. Everyone's like, wow, this seems really strong. And it was the same thing I talked about last week on the podcast, where it's like, well, I just need to put the work in because no one else is going to. And I just kind of switched around cards. We talked about things a lot. And I honestly, I didn't even play that much, all things considered. I probably only got 50 to 70 games in with the deck, counting game best of ones, probably. So, yeah, it was weird because Arena... Is so much quicker and more efficient than everything, and everyone has decks so much quicker as well. It seems like if you want to have a deck, you can have it on Arena very quickly. Yeah, and so uh, one other thing that I do think it's important for us to note about our prep is that we weren't flying solo, even though we were playing a lot of games or anything else. You know, we were working with uh, you know Hess and Ellison, whole team Good Eats, uh, making it happen, and that we had each kind of picked a different direction to try to focus on, right? Um, you know, that we had your red-black mid-range deck, and then also Hess was working on a sacrifice deck. Uh, Ellison was looking at red variants and other things like that and control shells. And so we were each trying to kind of pick a different direction to focus on so that we could get as much information in the short amount of time that we had, and that we were sharing that through chat in addition to while it was that we were playing the games. Um, and, and that was a big help and a big part of what we were able to eventually land on the list that we did. Yeah, 100%. Because without that, we, even though, like, we were all playing different decks, and, like, for me, it was pretty, I was pretty sure I wasn't going to play, some, like, Mono Red and stuff like that at the event, it was still good to help, like, talk with them about stuff and hear their thoughts and their troubles and their successes, because it gave me a frame of reference for what those decks are doing, right? It's like, Mono Red keeps winning as long as I draw, like, you know, a light up the stage or whatever, right? It's just so much card advantage. It's like, okay, that's good to know that these decks are now faster than when they were with the Experimental Frenzy, right? Because Experimental Frenzy lets you go longer, but uh, light up the stage gives you a shorter burst of card advantage. So that kind of stuff helped me frame how I wanted to build my main deck and my sideboard, etc. Yeah. 
And then the biggest thing that I had that was a, a great discovery two days before the tournament is I was actually trying to put my deck together in paper, even though I didn't have a lot of the cards and I was pulling cards. And I was trying to find my Ixalan's bindings and I couldn't find them. And I found them in an old mono white box. And in that, when I was looking through it, it was a deck and it had shield mirrors on the sideboard. And I forgot that card was a card. I didn't even oh, know yeah. that that card existed anymore. It was dead to me until the three seconds before I saw it. And then when I saw it, it was like, holy crap, this card seems so good against the burn decks. And so I was able to, to use that sideboard tech and I, it was very useful throughout the tournament. Mm-hmm. How did you like Shieldmare, by the way, before we move on to more focusing on the actual SCG? Is that a card that you would play again, or...? I, I would play Shieldmare again. I, I think that it was good. Um, the, the effectiveness of it varied depending on what the builds were that I played against, um, but all parts of it was really useful. Like So for those of you who don't know, Shieldmare is a 2-3. Uh, when it comes into play, uh, you gain 3 life, and if your opponent targets it with any spell or ability, you gain 3 more life. And it also cannot be blocked by red creatures. And it is uh, white-white colorless to cast. Um, And it's a horse, as its name may indicate. Um, But the the card was very effective, because I played against like electrostatic field decks, and their plan is to kind of sit behind these O4s and then try to build up a critical amount of spells in order to kill you. And so the fact that it couldn't be blocked was useful, especially if I got a couple of them out, because I could race against what was going on while having gained some life. Um, most of the time too, if I were playing against opponents who were just used to like, okay, this card's a problem, I need to burn it out. And so you get to gain six life off of it. Uh, some of my opponents in the later rounds figured out that that was a bad idea and were just throwing all their burn spells at my face so that I never gained more than the three life that I got off of it. Um, but even in that, it was comparable to kind of playing a Knight of Autumn, uh, except I could be sure that I was going to be able to be relevant in combat. Yeah. So you kind of had a more aggressive stance to it and you already had Knight of Autumn as well. So you got to have some like extra Knight of Autumns. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I had a lot of life gain on the sideboard, um, and, and that was really relevant. But it ended up being that the best card that I had in the 75 against the red decks was Shalai, much more than any of the red, like life gain cards. Is that because they just had to throw two burn spells at it and take turns off, or what was it about that card? Yeah, both. I mean, they, they had to deal with it immediately, and so it would generally dictate the pace of their next turn. And it made it really favorable if you ever got to untap with it because you could interact with it with Frilled Mystic, you could interact with it with putting counters on stuff, you could do all kinds of different things like that. And then it always cost them two spells in order to deal with it if they are going to deal with it. Um, and, and it makes them completely shift their game plan away from throwing stuff at your face to have to deal with this card immediately. And that's a lot of resources for them to have to spend on a thing that they really don't want to spend it on. Gotcha, okay. Well, let's talk about the actual tournament here, and let's hop right into the journey. So, Trey, what did you, like, kind of play against in the uh, day one, etc., on the road to making day two? Uh, day one, I played against uh, Esper three times. I played against, like, uh, two Esper control decks and an Esper mid-range deck. Um, I played against uh, a, a few variants of Burn. It was like electrostatic field type thing. And then it was also like a more traditional mono red. Um, I, I played against a teamer climb. And then I also played against a couple of Bant decks. It was like a Bant climb deck that was structured quite a bit differently than my own. Uh, and then I also played against like the Bant flash deck where it was like more like uh, Angel of Grace and, and uh, whatever it's uh, the, the six drop guy that's got surveil and bounce a card. Oh, uh, Dream Eater. That's it, Dream Eater. Um, so it was that kind of a thing, and like 
that deck was tough for them to to deal with what it is that I was doing because I could get under them and then I could tempo them better because all of the stuff they were trying to do to interact with the board was really expensive. But so that was the type of stuff that I was dealing with mostly. And the games varied wildly between me playing like turn three bi uh, Biogenicus, which it didn't matter what deck I was playing against, they were probably going to lose. Or like getting into really grindy situations where then I had to deal with like Hadana's Climb or Krasis in order to try to go over the top of them. Okay, gotcha. Very interesting. And how about you? What type of stuff were you running into? So, uh, my round-by-round round here is I put against Mono Red round one. I put against the Sultai mid-range deck, which seems to be the breakout deck of the format that everyone kind of knew about. Uh, Mono Red in round three, which is my only loss on day one. Uh, Mardu Divas. Then I played against Reclamation Gate deck, which is the expansion explosion deck that's using the gate package. Then I played against Esper mid-range, Mono Red again, Mono Blue Tempo, and then another Sultai mid-range deck. Um, yeah, I played against a lot of the things I kind of expected to play against, which was interesting. For When I'm listening to your kind of talk about it, it sounds like you played against a lot of stuff that I was not, that I knew existed, but I wasn't like, oh, this is going to show up in big numbers, right? But for the ma my matchups, it's like, oh, I kind of played against stuff that I expected to see, which was an interesting dynamic between the two of us, right? Yeah, I was really surprised to see Esper in as high of numbers as it was. Like, I knew that there was talk about it going into the tournament, but, like, it was pretty heavily played, at least from what I saw on the tables around me. Like, the the control variants of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually never saw the control deck in play, like, next to me at all the entire tournament. So my only experience with Esper was the mid-range deck. Like, I saw that one near me a good bit. But I never actually saw people cast, like, Kaya's Wrath and stuff. Which yeah. is a, a, a different dynamic, obviously, than the one you had. Did, so you played against three Esper control decks, Trey, is that correct? Or did you play against Esper mid-range? I played against two Esper control decks and one mid-range. Um, <laughs> and I went 1-1 one, one against the control decks. Um, the key from my side of things as far as that matchup is all about Krasis. Um, is it was a lot of trading one-for-ones, and then I could resolve a Krasis for a lot of mana and then get back into it. Like, the, the match that I won... My opponent and I had gone down and traded everything off, and we were both hellbent. And then he drew a card and didn't play anything. And then I drew a Krasis and Krasis with exit 14 and drew seven cards and had a 14-14 in play. And I didn't lose that game. <laughs> so that was pretty good. Um, wow, you found a way when you drew seven cards. What a yeah. master. I didn't realize. <laughs> <Who knew? laughs> uh, uh, yeah. But... The, the deck that, I, that gave me the most problem, actually, on day one, because I, I started off 5-0, and then I lost two, and then I lost, and then I won the, the last two on day one, is that uh, there was a teamer climb deck, but it was really, like, flyer heavy. It was, like, Rekindling Phoenix and Dragon, um, and then it was, like, went big with Ravager Worm and stuff like that, and, and that amount of, like, tough flying creatures was a difficult thing for my deck to deal with. Yeah, so flying in general did seem pretty popular this weekend. I played against a lot of flying creatures as well. One of my mono-red opponents, uh, Chris Anderson, the first round, he had main deck phoenixes for, like, game one. So, like, he came prepared to answer those kind of threats while also having edge in the mirror, which I thought was a unique approach for sure. Trey, what do you think about the metagame at the end of day one, looking at the stats in Star City games, you know, seeing how Esper was one of the top decks, seeing a Bug Midrange be one of the top decks? What do you think about just that in general? Yeah, I don't know that it was entirely that surprising. I mean, with it being a week one meta, I think that those Sultai mid-range decks, which are basically just black-green splashing Krasis, is 
uh, the type of thing that really makes sense to me as a week one deck a lot of the times is you just take an existing deck and you add a couple of cards to it, right? So they had these really well-tuned black-green decks. It had the very powerful explore package. The, the threat of mono red was still there. They're like, okay, we're going to gain a bunch of life. And then whatever other mid-range nonsense we run into, we'll try to go over the top with Krasis. And it's like, so that there's a lot about that plan that makes sense. And I think that that's a key point that you have to have if you're looking at deck building, especially earning a format, is having a defined plan that you know what it is that you're going to be doing and how it is that you're going to process those things. And that deck seems to make sense a lot as to what its plan is. Um, and it being a play style that was going to be easily adaptable from a previous deck uh, seems like something that would be easy for people to pick up, especially if they didn't have a lot of time to test leading up to the event. Um, I don't know that that's going to be as prevalent in the format overall as it was in week one, uh, even though I do think that the deck is good. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that statement. I'm curious, though, specifically for the RPTQ more so than SCG Baltimore, right? Like in SCG Baltimore, I think a lot of people play Sultan Midrange because friends don't let friends play bad decks, right? And it's like, well, if you're afraid of Nexus, which we'll get here to in a second, that deck has a pretty good plan. If you're afraid of Mono Red, the deck has a pretty good plan. If you know, if you're afraid against any sort of aggressive plan, you have the Wild Growth Walkers, and you can win about just any game. And I think it appeals to a lot of Magic players. I think it specifically appeals to a lot of RPTQ players as well. So, for, you know, looking ahead at the RPTQ here, which we'll get into more later, I expect this deck to be a full, like in full force. But I wonder if it'll be that way still going into the Pro Tour in four weeks here. Right. Yeah, I think that that's a pretty good you know, idea with it is that, you know, leading into the RPTQ, it seems like the type of deck that would see a lot of play for a lot of the same reasons, especially because it's a tournament that matters, that people are going to have a lot of desire to do well in, and it's the type of mid-rangey deck that makes you feel like you have game in every matchup, no matter what it is that's going on. Um, and so I do think that it's going to show up in pretty high numbers this weekend, but I'm with you. I don't know that that's also going to be true leading into the Pro Tour. Yeah, I, I will say that unlike... Sometimes the mid-range decks where you feel like you have game in every matchup and honestly you just kind of don't. I think you do with this deck post-board. Like, Stroke, Negate, Duress gives you so much game against the Nexus decks. And then the the Explore package is so good in the main deck when combined with Krasis. You just have so much incidental life gain and Chupacabra and just things like that. It's just hard. And the deck does play, like, Climb in the main deck, which gives it a weird, like, well, some of the versions play Climb in the main deck, which give it this weird one-outer type thing where I actually lost a game to Sultai because they had like a quick climb draw and like burst me out real quick when normally that kind of deck doesn't apply that kind of pressure. Right. I have to say that one of the largest surprises to me over the weekend was how prevalent Hadana's climb was. Like, even though I was a person who was playing Hadana's climb, like it was in any deck that could basically play it. Every deck that I played against that had those color combinations, if you were playing green and blue at some point, you were playing Hadana's climb. Like, even the number of teamer decks that I played against were playing Hadana's Climb and no Rhythm of the Wilds. Like, it was clearly, like, the community had decided, like, Hadana's Climb is the best of the three-mana enchantments that you can be playing in these colors. Um, and, and that was not something that I would have expected. I thought that we might see a little bit more variation. Yeah, I wonder so much if it's, like, people expected Rhythm of the Wilds, and it's like, this is the go-to to go over top of that stuff, right? Because flying and doubling the power is so good. And then building up your creatures on the ground lets you rumble with rhythm, right? Because, like, in theory, worst-case scenario, well, uh, a scenario always is that they're one bigger, and your climb lets you do the same thing, just a little slower at times, but has more burst potential later. So I'm curious how a lot of people got to that conclusion, because for you, it's just kind of like, we need some way to close the game out. And it seems like those other decks don't need that as much, which is a weird 
weird way for things to break. Right. Well, I know it's quite possible that people reached a similar conclusion to what we were going to think, which was that considering how consistent the mid-range decks were and how fast the mono red decks were, that we kind of thought that control wasn't going to be as big a player as it ended up being. There ended up being a lot more control than what we anticipated. And it's like, okay, so rhythm is really good against control, but we're expecting there to be less control there than there might otherwise be. But Hedonis Climb's also good against control, but it also has value against the decks that aren't that. So, like, maybe that kind of became, like, the hedging play as opposed to, like, the we're going to have this card that's just lights out against control decks. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's a super awkward way for things to have broken down there. Let's kind of talk about some of the things that people were talking about going into during and after the tournament now when it comes to the metagame here. Trey, what do you think about Wilderness Reclamation? I, I mean, the card's fine. I, you know, I, I don't know that it is as powerful as it was uh, reported to be. Um, you know, the, the talk leading up into the tournament was, you know, it seemed like every other day somebody was tweeting out a deck list with Reclamation and apologizing for breaking standard and apologizing for making it a ruinous tournament environment for everybody to play in. Um, and that's just not the way that the tournament played out. Um, there were very few of those decks at the top tables in day one, and there was an even smaller number of them that kind of hit the day two metagame. Yeah, I'm curious to know what will happen at the Pro Tour when it comes to this deck specifically. Because my opinion is, and it's kind of harsh, is that this deck can't beat Negate or Duress when played correctly. That you, like, av- average draw versus average draw, if both decks are, like, playing, like, a normal game of Magic and not busted draws, if one player has Negate and the other player doesn't, it's over. I yeah, just don't think the deck operates. It's true. You know, I saw I saw an example of that. Like, uh, I was sitting next to Andrew Elgaborn, Pro Tour Champion, who was playing the White Weenie deck, Splashing Blue, for Deputy Detention and Negates. And his opponent was on Reclamation. And he just played a lot of, like, little White Weenie dudes. And it got to a point where his opponent was like, cast Wilderness Reclamation. He's like, okay. And then he was like, float my mana, cast Nexus of Fate. It's like, Negate untap and kill you with my little dudes it just wasn't it wasn't even a game like the guy cast a a four mana spell that doesn't really do anything and then tried to cast a seven mana time warp it got negated and he died yeah 100 percent. i also that white weenie splash blue deck i think is the one of the decks i think people should be talking about more that isn't getting talked about which is weird but just for the record, I think if you played the White Weenie deck before, you should make that change. That deck seems very good. Trey, what do you think about the card Nexus of Fate along with Wilderness Reclamation? Uh, you know, we have in our notes here, were people complaining? We were hanging out with Teresa, so we heard a lot of complaining. But <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't have to hear Teresa get paired against it five times in a row, did you hear a lot of other complaining? What do you think about the card? Do you think it should go, et cetera, et cetera? I, I, as far as like on the tournament floor, I didn't really hear a lot of people talking about it. People weren't complaining about it. There was much more complaint like online leading up to the event than there was at the event. Um, you know, I saw the deck a couple of times, and, you know, but I didn't really see a lot of it just going crazy or going nuts. I mean, I think that Nexus of Fate is a big part of what makes the appeal to wanting to play that card. It's either that or Expansion Explosion or some combination of the two. But... I don't know. I mean, it, the problem with the I think the real problem with it is it's like that when that deck is winning and when it's doing the thing that it's doing, it's just miserable when you're on the other side of the table because you feel so helpless. And the person who's doing the thing, you feel so powerful like you could never lose or nothing could ever go wrong because they're just doing a thing that's fundamentally broken. And it, I think that that sometimes skews what the experience is on all the games when it doesn't go right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. It's, it's definitely a thing where, like, the perceptions are so polarizing normally, right, that it's hard to get, like, a clear picture of what's going on. Even my take, right, that, like, the reclamation, the all-in reclamation decks, the ones that aren't using Nexus but are just trying to expansion explosion for a bunch and can only win with Negate, that's still even just, like, a, a hyperbolic thing where it's, like, how can these decks ever win if you just counter their main piece? But in reality, they probably can. And it also is going to be interesting seeing how these decks adapt to fight through hate, right? Because we saw Fog uh, originally when there wasn't so much hate, it appeared, and then it kind of went away for a little bit, and then it had a mini resurgence when the hate was low, and they had adapted and figured out plans for that sort of hate. So I'm curious to see how that all plays out going on down the road. Yeah, I, one thing that definitely that the decks had an impact on the tournament seemingly is that rounds ran long day one. Oh my you know? gosh. We, we were yes. probably like plus 25 minutes in between every round. Um, and, and you know, I know it, it wasn't that big of a tournament. It was like 665 people or something like that. It was 800 uh, something. Yeah, something. But I mean, it's not like an outrageous size for an SCG. I mean, they've handled bigger tournaments and they, they do a good job in handling those things. So I think that these decks were definitely having an impact on time of the round. And, uh, you know, as we've seen before with bannings or anything else, have affecting tournament time of the round will, will do a lot more to get you banned than about anything else. That's very true. Yeah, it's also crazy because on day two, we barely went over. Because all, A, there were so few Nexus decks, but B, it's just the deck couldn't convert, I guess. I don't know. Maybe people are handling it better or scooping quicker, but we only went like four or five minutes over time, I felt like, every round except for one on day two. Yeah, I think there's a combination of things with that. Is it's that one, I think there were less of those decks. And and two, you know, there were only like 65 people on day two. So it just gets to a, a an easier type of thing to manage. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about Mono Red for a second. Where do you stand on Mono Red? Because there's a lot going on with Mono Red right now, right? You can play Light at the Stage, you can play Flame of Kill, you can play Risk Factor, you can play Experimental Frenzy. Mono Red has so much card advantage. You can play multiples of all those cards. You can mix and match them how you want. Where are you on Mono Red? Do you think it's a real player? Do you think these cards are true? Break it down, Trey. Where are you at with it? I, I think that Mono Red is real. Um, I, I have no interest in being a part of it, but I do think that it's very real. Uh, especially because, like, the mono-red decks have the same issue that all of the other decks have right now, which there are so many possibilities of the way that you could build it and to be effective in what it is that's going on. It's crazy. Like, you could be the mono-red decks that look a lot like the ones that they did before. They could be the light-up stage decks like what you were talking about. You could have Electrostatic Field and Gutter Snipe, which is a deck I played against uh, on day two, that was a mono-red deck splashing, uh, or not splashing, but also had Phoenix and all of these other crazy cards. Like, there are so many different possibilities of things that I think are effective, and all of them can do obscene amounts of damage. Like, I, I had a game that I played against Mono Red with Electrostatic Field, and I gained 16 life throughout the course of that game, and I had to have them brick a draw step in, in order to win. Wow. Like, that's an insane thing to have in a standard Mono Red deck. So, like, the decks are most assuredly real, but uh, trying to figure out what it is that you want to do with it and where what direction it is you want to go... Uh, it's just not the thing that's the most fun for me to think about. That's fair. What about you? So my tournament mono-red experience was awkward, right? So I played it round one, which was whatever, and then I played it in round three, and I played against, I forget his name, he was very nice. He's the SCG grinder that always plays mono-red in Legacy, and he's like, he just plays burn in every format. So when I sat down, I was like, he is going to be playing mono-red, 
so I mulliganed. And then when I played right again in the tournament, I had saw my opponent earlier in the day. I sat next to them, and they had tattoos on their hand. And they were another very nice player, but because of their hand tattoos, I recognized them, and I kept a hand that was very good against Mono Red. What that tells me is, is that if you have plans for Mono Red and you execute those plans, the deck seems to struggle, even when they have lots of card advantage. Now, my deck's plan against Mono Red is gain an obscene amount of life and negate their burn spells. So for me, Mono Red's kind of an easier matchup. I think Mono Red's real. I think Light Up the Stage is very good. But I'm unsure if Light Up the Stage is better than Experimental Frenzy always, or if it's a thing where we need to go week by week by week. And I think that's going to be the difference between good Mono Red players and great Mono Red players, are they're going to know what cards you're supposed to be playing each week. Because I think it shifts a lot on what the other decks are doing. For example, I think Live the Stage is very good if everyone has answers to your four-mana do-nothing art enchantment when you first play it, right? There's a lot of Mortify, a lot of Assassin's Trophy, a lot of those kind of cards in the metagame. I don't want to do that. i much rather play a Divination. So figuring out where things are at with Mono Red, I think, will be important. I think one of the reasons we see so much hate for Mono Red and complaining is the relevance of Best of One on Arena and Ranked. So you see Mono Red... It's kind of the same thing with Nexus, to be honest, too. You just see it all the time, so your hatred grows for it, right? You see this happen in formats anytime you see the same deck get played over and over and over again. And now what we're seeing happen is, because Arena is so accessible for everyone, we're having this happen on a quicker and much larger scale, because Best of One rewards playing these linear decks for the most part, and then also rewards you to play fast decks. So having a deck like Mono Red, where you win very quickly and climb the ladder, it's punishing the bad draws and very efficient and very cheap, makes it seem much worse than it probably actually is. And I think it's a good deck and a deck that I would totally play with something that's on the line. But if I had the choice, I don't think I would play it. Yeah, I think that that's reasonable. Like, I, And I do think that that best of one impact is real, right? Like you get to the higher levels of rank and it's like 60% of the metagame or something absurd because it's just mm -hmm. so good for grinding ladder. You, you literally keep hands based on if they're like mono red or not. We're like an aggressive deck. Like at yeah. least personally, that's what I do had a lot of success with that um let's move on though and I, i'd like to start with this one i would like no. for you to start with this one let's talk yeah. about the flying spaghetti man the crisis he's bringing the business what do you think the jelly is baby is he true is he the real daddy i believe crisis come in all forms so i believe that the crisis is the truth i think crisis is a deity a being on its own doesn't have a gender that's where I'm at with the Krasis. The Krasis is the truth, in my opinion. So Krasis does an interesting thing and proves this kind of theory I've had for a while, uh, where if it doesn't prove it, I'm at least making it prove my theory. That incidental life gain on efficient cards is really good in standard. So when you look at Vraska's con Contempt, right, uh, you would play that card a lot of the time at its just mana cost without gain to life. But the fact that it has gain to life makes it a card that you can very easily play and kind of draws you towards playing, right? Because even against Mono Red, it's not dead in that matchup where it's not super efficient and at least counters a burn spell, right? It kills their Chain Whirler and counters your shock. It does the kind of thing. And incidental life gain is so important, even in grinding matchups, because one person takes the aggressive role, right? And then they're like, okay, my hand's saying I have to be the beatdown. I can't win the long game. And Veracity Contempt punishes you for that. It says, no, I'm going to kill your big thing, I trade up efficiently on mana, and gain a little life to make the race harder for you. Krasis does the same thing. Not only does Krasis do the incidental life gain theory I've had for a while now, and help prove it in my opinion, I think it also is just so efficient at winning games if the game stalls out. 
or if you're able to generate mana very quickly. So from my perspective, I played Krasis in a ramp deck. So I was playing Krasis for huge numbers, right? I was playing Krasis for five, or draw five cards again, so I guess Krasis for 10, I should say. Krasis for 10, Krasis for 12, pretty commonly. And Krasis for eight, and just drawing a huge amount of cards and having this threat that then warp the game around killing the threat or stop my opponent's aggression immediately. So it kind of does this job of stealing initiative from your opponent by using up a lot of your mana, but then now that you have all these new cards, you keep using your mana efficiently for multiple turns. So it allows you to like use your mana efficiently, continue to use your mana efficiently, and bear your opponent card advantage while also applying a big clock. So I think Krasis is the truth. That card is very powerful. And honestly, it's a little scary how strong it is. Uh, I saw a, a thread going today on Twitter by Nick Prince that was, look at all these cards that can answer Krasis. And while I think that's true, like, Angrath minusing it to hit them for a lot, and then it dying is a nice trick, and Trancing Melody always being, I believe, uh, two mana to take, uh, I'm sorry, I believe you have to, you have to spend four, but X is two to take the Krasis. That's a nice trick out of some of the decks. There are a lot of things you can do to answer this card. Ritual of Soot answers the card. The thing is, is that it's just attacking from so many different angles and doing them all just efficiently enough that I think it's going to be warping the metagame maybe more than any other card. Where it's like, if you're not playing a crisis deck, you need to be able to outgrind the crisis decks or close the door before they, excuse me, get to their crises. Because crisis's flexibility really is insane. I understand what I, the example I'm about to give a super corner case, but I think it speaks to how powerful crisis is. To win my game against Mono Blue, I played a crisis for X's 1, so that I could have a 1-1 one, one blocker and allow me to also put on the board another blocker. If, I, if Krasis wasn't so flexible, it wouldn't allow me to do that. I wouldn't be able to win. A card that can be a super late-game threat and be flexible, like this that flexible where you can do whatever you want with it, I think is super powerful and super real. Trey, I'm curious your opinions because you also played a Krasis deck, but your Krasis normally weren't as big as mine. I don't know that that's entirely true. <laughs> My Krasis okay. were gigantic. Uh, this isn't Kras- a competition, Trey. I know your Krasis is huge. Listen, we don't have to sit here and measure Krasis. But okay. the... The Krasis does it all. It slices, it dices, it julienne fries, it can make toast, it does everything. Um, I think that you hit the nail on the head with the flexibility of the card. I don't know how many times I would just like get to four mana and not have another play and just play Krasis for two to draw a card and gain a life and have a 2-2 flyer. And like sometimes that was the difference between making a land drop for that turn or not making a land drop or doing any of those other kinds of things. Like it just did so much in the middle game. And then in the late game, like... Playing a deck that has four Krasis in it, it's silly. Because you like play one for X is six, or play one for X is eight, and then you draw another Krasis. And then the next turn, you just play another one for bigger, and you play another one for bigger. And like you can just take over a game from an insane amount behind just by not even casting another spell, other than just chaining them one into another. Which is something that happened to me a lot when I was in the mid-range matchups. Um, yeah. And in, in the deck that I was in, too, I also had some silly turns that are, like, kind of magical Christmas land, but they happened, and it made it made the deck look very powerful. Where I played, like, Incubation Druid on two, Hadana's Climb on three, put a counter on Incubation Druid, then tap Incubation Druid second main phase to play another Incubation Druid, and then the next turn do the same thing, and then play, like, a, a Krasis with exit eight on turn four. And you're just not going to lose those games very often. Like, it just does an insane amount of stuff. And the the life gain, even though it's most of the time like somewhere between two to four life, like that makes such a huge difference a lot of the times in the combat racing that it was surprising how much you'd be like, okay, I'm like 
barely teetering. I need a blocker, and if they have a removal spell, I'm going to die to, like, Xaxes on board. It's like, oh, well, I can just play Krasis, and I can draw a couple of cards, and then if they have a removal spell, I'm at, like, two. And then I can try to come back the next turn. And that came up a lot uh, in the real creature-heavy matchups, too. Yeah, that came up a lot for me as well. It also came up in, like, the mid-range matchups where I talked about how they, like, have a slow clock, so they need Hedonis Climb. And my last round of day one, my opponent, I uh, my deck plays the Archway Angel, so I gained a bunch. I was at, like, 40, right? But there were multiple turns where we were both drawing bricks, but they were attacking me for, like, six, right? Or five, something like that. So it was it was significant, but it was enough where I had gained enough life that it didn't really matter, and I was hitting my land drops. And I drew a Krasis, and I'm like, all right, Krasis is eight, draw four, gain four, right? And it's like, okay, that stopped a turn, and now I drew all these cards. And, like, they drew another land. And it's like, uh-oh, play Krasis for nine. Now it's, you know, a 9-9, nine, nine, draw four cards, gain four more life. And they're like, okay, answer a Krasis. It's like, well, now you're still not attacking me. I drew all these cards, right? So it really does take over games. Here's another thing about the card, too. It's so good. It's the kind of card that has abilities on it you forget are there. Like, you forget the card has trample. Like, it, it, yeah. it just doesn't come up a lot because you're like, well, I just drew a bunch of cards. I gained a bunch of life and I have a giant flyer. And then you attack in and your opponent starts looking at their blocks and they're like, well, I don't I don't have good blocks because this thing also has trample and is going to kill me anyway. 100%. Yeah. And also the fact that the it's a uh, people are like messaging me after they started to play my deck and they're like, oh, I forgot this is a cast trigger. I can just run this into control decks. And it's like, yeah, you can just play it as a big threat on the turn where they want to like you know, hold up control mat, or they want to, like, hold up draw spells and ask contact activations, but they have to answer this. And it's like, well, if they don't answer it, they take a bunch of damage probably on the next turn. Even if they do, you still replace the cards, right? So you're, like, somehow up on cards the control deck when you trade, which is crazy. That's going to do it, though, for the talk about specific cards and whatnot. Trey, what did you really learn, though? If you had to take one lesson to give to the people, what would you say? Um... Uh, the biggest thing that I had was that is that I don't know that life gain is the correct angle to try to battle the red decks. Like they're so good at pushing through that type of thing. You have to be able to clock them. You have to be able to get into combat with them and race them in that regard. And that you need some kind of life gain to stay alive. But like packing your sideboard with like all the life gain spells that you have, I don't think is a reasonable strategy in order to try to play against those decks. Yeah, that's a good one. I would say this is, you know, something that um, maybe it's not specific to the metagame, but just another lesson for Magic in general that I applied this weekend is remember what your plan is, and if it's a bad matchup, try your best to make those plans happen. My deck is not very good against combo decks, right? I'm a big, slowy control deck that plays mass manipulation to be, get the mid-range decks, right? But I have Gatebreaker Ram, so I can draw Gatebreaker Ram and play it against Fog decks and Reclamation decks, and I can slam and I need to mulligan and make those kind of plays matter. Same for Gates of Blaze against aggro decks, right? Like I am a slow controlled, I'm a slow controlling deck. But if I draw Gates of Blaze, I can make these things happen. So it's just relearning that lesson and knowing that your plans can matter. Trey, if you had to make some uh, one big change to your deck, let's say someone looked at the SCG, saw your deck list, and saw the deck list were published, what would you change? Uh, the, the biggest thing, it goes back to the thing that I said about what I would learn is that I think that the the best thing that you can possibly do against the burn decks is to, is to play Shalai. And so what I want to try to test going forward is going up to four Shalai in the 75. Um, so I would look at probably cutting Lyra and probably a Johnny out of the side, which were cards that were not particularly useful most of the weekend, uh, and just try to make those two more Shalais decide in in that type of matchup. Totally reasonable. 
The one thing I would change, I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the show, is I would change most of the sideboard to fit what I learned this weekend, which is to have better plans. So really, I'm only talking about five or six cards, but I would try and make it so that my plans against the matchups that are bad are better because our good matchups like Sultai Midrange, which I think is like part of the reason to play the, the gate deck right now is if you think Sultai is good, the gate deck's really good, is you bring in one to two cards depending on like what you think they're going to do. So with that being the case, it's like, well, I have a lot of cards that are kind of for this matchup, so I need to figure out other things to do with these other matchups to make those plans better because you can afford to do that. So that would be the changes we make. That's kind of our opinion, our view on just being there week one of SCG. Indianapolis. It was a great time. Had a lot of fun with friends, just like Trey said at the top of the show. Wouldn't trade it for the world. You know what else we wouldn't trade for the world, Trey? The network. Darn tooting, Trey. <laughs> We're on the CCMTG network with lots of great shows on the network. We have Constructive Criticism, which we talk about every week. We have The Hive Mind, which is the newest show on the channel. It's, I say it's the newest show, Trey. It's already been like three months. Time flies. They have their talk show. It's bi-weekly. Get people on from the Magic community and talk about them great show we have common knowledge the premium popper podcast popper's really popping off right now there's lots of craziness going on with gush and foil and hoopla and whatnot right now that podcast keep you in the know if you're a big popper fan the popper gp is coming trey i'm not just saying that i really believe it yeah I, i think it's probable you know they've already had it now where they've had a popper event that's coming up that you can qualify for the pro tour with or sorry the mythic championship or the uh, alternating sack race. I don't know what it's called anymore. But, yes, that is a thing that can happen. Yeah, although I guess we might not know if it does happen. That's the awkward part. You can also check out Homeward Path. It's another show on the network. Homeward Path it is a MTG dad show, kind of focusing on more if you have a busy life and balancing magic and that kind of stuff. So that's something that really speaks to you. I'd highly suggest checking out that podcast. And that's going to do it this week. Trey, if someone wants to message you and be like, man, that band climb was lit for 20, where could they do that? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at TreyMC. Uh, and I did also tweet, tweet out a clip from the uh, on-camera match that I had had. Uh, so you can check out some of that, you know, from the coverage that was there of the event. Oh, Trey, if someone wanted to check out this coverage and they wanted to see you, what round would they check out? Uh, I believe that it was round 13. If I'm, round if I'm, it's either round 12 or round 13. I'm not sure. But it's on the day two video. It's approximately an hour into the video. Gotcha. And the time they're hearing this is probably on the YouTube channel as well. So if you go check round 13, I believe Trey was the first match. So he'll be right at the beginning. You'll notice because the person's name is Trey. If yeah. you want to find... <laughs> no, it is. If you are looking for it, it is my legal name, which is Marshall. So. Yes, yeah. That was a little joke I was making at Trey there. Yeah. Uh if you want to find me and tell me about how my deck's a great draft-looking deck and they're going to cut mass manipulation just like everyone else from the main deck, you can tweet at me, at Mason E. Clark. Trey's shaking his head, nah. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Mason Clark. I've got my little token saying that's my Twitter picture. I've had a couple people already message me. It's been pretty uh, fun talking to people about the ramp deck, and I'm happy that people are enjoying the deck. And don't forget, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, at EvenOddsPod on Twitter. We always tweet when the show is up. Sometimes we'll tweet little special things when the shows about what the show is going to be that week and or things that come uh, are companion episodes to the show, and that way you can never miss it on all your iTunes, Spotify needs. I do want to say one last thing as well about the weekend is that, uh, you know, friend of the show, Lucas, uh, went to this event, and he had set some goals for himself, and he really, he really worked hard and played some good magic, and it was good to see him continue to grow uh, as he gets more into this game. 
Yes, yeah. You know, you know what, Lucas? Here's your shout-out, buddy. You've always went on the podcast. You did great this weekend. You crushed it. And just even your demeanor, it's funny. So our friend Teresa stayed with us at the SCG, and I stayed with Lucas and them. And Teresa and Lucas got paired in round three of the uh, main event. And then they both played the classic and got paired in round four. And Lucas is just – he got – Got two out both times. You lost, buddy. I'm sorry. But your demeanor was much better between the first time and the second time. And just in that one day, I could see the difference in the things. And I could tell you were actually applying what we had talked about. And talking about what you can't control and what you can do. And mulliganing when you have to. And all that kind of stuff. So, great job there, buddy. That's going to do it for us. Roll with us next week. You know, I wanted to take a second and talk about something that was happening leading up to this event. You know, this is week one of the format. And people are already talking about banning Nexus of Fate or banning Wilderness Reclamation. Wow, okay, we need to ban an uncommon enchantment that doesn't do anything before there's even been tournament results. It's so early in the format, we don't even know what it is that's going to be good. Wow. Wow, okay, Trey. You're seriously going to talk about Wilderness Reclamation like every other podcast in the world right now? You understand that Watsy didn't give the GP winner a trophy? Do you know how hard it is to get a trophy? Let me tell you how hard it is. It's not. I went and got one for myself today for being the best Even Odds podcast co-host on the planet. It takes two minutes, Trey. Two minutes. Yeah, not only that, but then after the fact... Uh, CFB events wanted to tweet out that they had ordered trophies, but they didn't show up. Sure, and I'm sure that Homer always remembered Marge's birthday every time and wasn't just at Moe's getting drunk. Wow, okay, Trey, you're still going to talk about that and not segue into the fact we don't have GP coverage anymore? You're telling me Watsy finally puts enough money in the game that we could finally make a career out of this for at least 32 people in the world. But once you do that, the world's going to know you but for the world to know you, we had to make some budget cuts. So to do that, we cut all the budget. But don't worry, the NPL will probably be good, except we don't have any proof of that, and all the money is going to this. Wow. Okay, Trey, I can't believe you're letting the ball drop like this. No, no, no. Everything's fine. We're going to make an announcement in January, which is over like tomorrow. It's not really that big a deal. But don't worry, we're going to let lay everything out. There's going to be a big plan. We've always had the plan. The plan has been in place since the beginning. We're not making it up as we go along. Uh, we're not just throwing things against the wall to see what it is that makes everybody furious, and then we'll respond after that. No, that's definitely good. That's why like every other sporting event and everything else in the world just doesn't televise any of their games or doesn't talk about any of their players or doesn't do any of these other kinds of things because that's definitely the best way to make sure that you're like a real sport. Wow. Okay, you're telling me that what Watsi just did was tweet at Pin Manny's mom and say, hey, we're not going to televise the Super Bowl this year. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. They didn't even do it in an official announcement. They just had Reed Duke's mom tweeted, it's bad that there's no coverage. And then they made their official announcement in a reply tweet, which are about as easy to find as buried treasure if you're looking on the internet. So this is just, I, I can't I, I can't even form words right now. I'm so mad. Wow. Okay. Roll with us next week. <laughs>